It is a good feeling to be saying welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Welcome back, everyone, to season five of No Script, the podcast. I know. Welcome back this time is not just welcome back from last Monday or whatever day that you listened to the episodes. It is welcome back from a nice break. We took some time off. We did not read a script and prepare for an episode <laughs> every week. It was it was a lovely little pause, but it is really, really good to be back. We love to do it, so it, it's a nice feeling to be back on the back on the wagon but it's not like a sobriety thing so i don't think back on the trail or some, something about know. being back back on the horse <laughs> <laughs> <It's> the... yeah <laughs> anyway <laughs> season five everybody Woo-hoo! season five here we are here we are going to be jumping into a bunch of great new scripts there's going to be some really familiar things about this season and some things that are going to be you know just a little bit different we're playing with some of the traditions uh while sticking to some of the ones that we 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 love and uh we know that all of you love as well yeah you will you will get a themed month from us this season as always we'll we'll keep that hidden behind the doors for a little while as we work out exactly how it's going to work and what the theme is going to be and the scripts and all that but there will be a themed month there will be a special guest those traditions are in place our tradition of trying to have a wide variety of scripts and voices is going to stay in place our tradition of doing classic scripts as well as really new stuff that's coming out that's going to be in place but one thing that is not going to be the same, it begins today, actually. Right, it right. begins with this episode, because this episode is not about a script by Lynn Nottage. It's true. We're kicking it off right away with the breaking of traditions. We have done a Lynn Nottage play at the start of every season, and we're switching it up this time. We're switching it up to... Fairview by Jackie Sibley's Drury. That's right. So we've done a lot of Lynn Nottage scripts. We love Lynn Nottage. Lynn Nottage makes the top echelon of playwrights for me. Anytime I have to construct that list, her scripts are brilliant. This is not a knock against you, Lynn Nottage. Please continue to be a listener. I don't know if you are or not. I suspect not. But if you are, stay because we love you. And it's not like we won't do any more Lynn Nottage scripts ever. It's just that we've done one for the first episode every season so far. And that's a lot of Lynn Nottage scripts. There's a lot of great playwrights out there. So we're switching it up. Like Jackson said, today we're talking about Fairview by Jackie Sibley's Drury. Why did we pick that script? Well, as we were thinking about moving away from Lynn Nottage plays to open every season, we figured, well, let's look at the Pulitzer. So Fairview is the 2019 Pulitzer Prize winner. That's a good place to pull a play. Additionally, it's another play by a woman of color, which is really awesome that we can continue at least that part of having Lynn Nottage at the beginning of every season. Yeah, yeah, we tend to we tend to look to the Pulitzers when we're looking for good plays to grab from. It doesn't mean we're going to be doing a Pulitzer at every at the start of every season or anything, but we're going to like be drawing from these. Our, our mission statement is to talk about theater's best scripts, and certainly the plays that get nominated for the Pulitzer Prize are among that echelon. 
So this is a special episode because it's the first episode of season five. It's a special episode because we're moving away from a no script tradition that we've held for four seasons. And there's another reason why today's episode is going to be a little bit different, a little bit special, hopefully a little bit memorable. And it has to do with what the play Fairview is about. It's a play that is about race. In a lot of ways, it's a play about making space for people of color in the world of theater. It's a play that's a lot about latent white supremacy that exists in our society and our hearts. It's uh, some of the plays about how we tell stories and how the stories of people of color are often oriented for white people. It's a story about the white gaze. Yeah, yeah. The the, the play itself, even uh, termed Fairview, could be considered. Uh, it's right there in the title. Um, and then, of course, the the... The irony that we're aware of is that Jacob and I are two white people talking about the play. We're not just white people. We're like two really white people. Like we're we're, we're we're, both pale. We're both like in that borderline of being almost redheaded. I don't Jackson, you consider yourself a redhead? I don't know that I ever asked you that. It's at least red bearded. I don't know if I'm, I'm quite red headed. I'm red yeah. bearded too. Yeah. So so all that to say, we're like two really white guys. Yeah, absolutely. And we're 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 talking about this play because it is a great play. It's an important play. It's impactful. It's moving as we said before. It's a Pulitzer Prize winning play. Because of all that, we're really continuing to be committed to our mission of talking about theater's best scripts. We want to be able to talk about these. We're we're we don't want to be afraid to talk about hard, complicated and messy topics. And certainly in this cultural moment, it is important that we are continue to talk about these hard topics. I think it's important, though, to just for us to acknowledge that because we're two white people, our voices, especially on a conversation like this, are going to be pretty limited. The perspective of white folks in general about race only goes so far. And this is a cultural moment where white people are being given a this cold shower, this big wake-up call to the racism that's still in our systems and our institutions and our hearts and our communities. And so... In the wake of what's happened with George Floyd's murder and all the other instances of racism that are just rising to the surface of especially white people's awareness, um, we have some work to do. Uh, Us as the hosts of No Script, us as white people, us as members of our communities. And we want to start that work by saying at the beginning of season five something that we should have said a long time ago and we're going to say now. We're going to say we believe that black lives matter. Yes, black lives matter. We here at No Script, we want to say that just without without any room for equivocation, black lives matter. And so we want to affirm that in some ways. Some of it's going to be what we're going to do on today's episode and then some other ways as well. And so we're going to respond to the to our belief that black lives matter as well as to this uh, pretty fair criticism of the theater that's come out and been co-signed by a lot of the people of color that work in the theater. It's yeah. called Dear White American Theater. You should read it if you haven't. Uh, you can just Google Dear White American Theater and you'll find it. And there's a there's a lot of real criticism in that in that open letter is what it is. And so because of that and all the other stuff, Jackson and I have looked at the season that we've planned and 
overall, actually, we were pretty pleased with the diversity of scripts and voices that we found in there, but we, we were aware that we could do better and that we could do more. Yeah, so we took another crack at the season. We threw in some uh, different scripts than we were planning on doing, and we took out, we added some others. Um, the goal is we want to have more people of color represented in our season, and we hope that you as our listeners out there in podcast land will be informed and uh, and and uplifted by this inclusion of more stories of people of color. So you can look forward to that for the whole season. I think it'll be great for our conversation It'll be great for the kinds of scripts that we're hopefully exposing you to. It'll be good for us. And so we're looking forward to that. But today, the episode is special and different and unique because we wanted to make sure that our perspective is not the only perspective on this script that we represented. So the episode today is going to work like this. Jackson and I, we're recording a whole hour conversation as normal, but then we're going to edit that conversation. We're going to create about a half an hour of conversation snippets from that whole hour that we have of Jackson and I talking about the script sort of as normal. Technique, structure, characters, themes, thing that we loved, all that. We're going to edit that down to just about a half an hour of discussion. And then what we hope that you will do with that extra half hour of time that you would normally continue listening on to us talking about plays um, is that you would listen to an interview about the play that involves someone who is not white. We have collected a a uh, couple, uh, three, three-ish uh, potential options, and those links are in the description on our Facebook page and in the podcast description. These are not the only options, but we got a couple uh, ready to go for you, uh, for you to, to expose yourself to another set of opinions than ours. <laughs> yeah, so we know that one of the interviews is an interview with a cast member from Fairview. Another of the interviews that we've kind of collected is an interview with Jackie Sibley's Drury herself. And then there's this great New York Times review, which is from the perspective of a white reviewer and a black reviewer having a conversation about this play they just saw, which if you've read Fairview, you'll know why that would be really a really important conversation to have. So those three links will be everywhere that we can post them so that you can either pick one or heck all three. If you've got the time, they're all awesome things to engage with the script. So we're really hoping that you'll do this. I hope that you'll really think about this the whole episode of No Script for Fairview is not just the half an hour-ish conversation that Jackson and I are going to have, but it's that plus some other voice that you can select from internet land or from the three options that we're suggesting combined. Um, including all these voices, is a, it's a much better way to approach the script than just you listening to Jackson and I talking about it for a half an hour. Yeah, yeah. One last thing before we hop into that edited half hour of highlights from our conversation. We usually do a plug for our Patreon account here. Uh, we will still say thank you to our patrons. Thanks, y'all. Y'all are awesome. And we'll still be doing that this season, but for this episode, we would like to encourage you instead to consider supporting another organization, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. This is the arm of the NAACP that fights for racial justice through our legal system, and they are currently fighting for police reform in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the murder of so many other persons of color. They also they offer scholarships as part of their mission to expand democracy, expand access to education. Um, and as part of their fight for democracy, they work to expand voting rights. That's really important to change the world, too. So we hope you'll consider offering your financial support to them. That's our financial support plug for this week. So now we hope that you enjoy this half an hour-ish edited conversation. It'll be different, but it, it'll be some of the substance that you're used to from us as we talk about Jackie Sibley's Drury's play uh, Fairview. 
And then hopefully you will engage with another interview, another voice, another conversation about that piece of theater as well. Thanks for listening in to the opening of season five and enjoy this conversation. Um, the play was produced for the first time in 2018. It was uh, commissioned by Berkeley Rep and Soho Repertory Theater. It had an off-Broadway at Soho Repertory Theater and uh, ran there uh, for, for that time frame, I believe June 30 to July 28th of that year. Notably then, uh, just extremely recently, it had a production at the Young Vic in London uh, back just in November uh, 28th of 2019 through January of 2020. So this is fresh off of the Young Vic Theater in London. Um, it's essentially a brand new play. Won the Pulitzer, as we uh, mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, the 2019 Pulitzer. Um, so it's it's still it's still very, very new, still being done on, on, on big theaters. I don't think it's really had a regional tour yet or anything like that. Um, it was nominated for a number of Drama Desk Awards in addition to the Pulitzer Prize. In the first act, we meet a black family, and they are about to hold a dinner party. It's a pretty high-stakes dinner party for Grandma. Uh, it's her birthday. I'm not. We don't know exactly know if this is a specifically important birthday party marker of some point in her life or just another birthday, and they're all high stakes. But everybody's pretty on edge about this birthday party they're about to have. Four characters in Act 1. Beverly, uh, she's the mother of Keisha, and her husband is Dayton, and her sister is Jasmine. And they're all getting ready for the birthday party. And this is, uh, Jackie Sibley's Drury describes it as like the dramedy section of this play. Hijinks ensue, things are spilled, uh, see family secrets are revealed, you know, like Keisha wants to take a gap year before she can go to college, and apparently Beverly and Dayton aren't really sleeping together anymore, and Jasmine and Beverly have a long-standing sibling argument about Beverly's desire to control everything, and so there's all this sort of we would feel it sort of normal, standard family drama type stuff. In fact, Jasmine actually has a whole monologue about kind of a standard family drama movie. And that's what we feel like we're in in Act 1. Act 1 ends with them discovering that the cake has been burnt in the oven and Beverly, the mother who's especially stressed about putting on this dinner, faints. That's the end of Act 1. Now, Act 2 is not a continuation of that story. Instead, it is a replay of that story somewhat. I want to read you the stage directions from the beginning of Act 1 and the beginning of Act 2 so that you can see perhaps what is different between watching Act 1 and Act 2 again. Act 2 is a replay with some added elements, but here's the stage directions from the beginning. Uh, Act 1, lights up on a Negro. Beverly is peeling carrots, real carrots, on a theater set that looks like a nice living room dining room in a nice house in a nice neighborhood. Act 2. This is just the beginning stage directions. Act 2. Lights up on a Negro. Beverly's peeling carrots, real carrots, on a theater set that looks like a nice living room dining room in a nice house in a nice neighborhood. Same stage directions over again. We watch the action of Act 1 without the lines, well, without the vocal part of the lines. I, I think the characters still say the lines, we just don't hear them. Um, so we watch the action of Act 1 again, same stuff over again. Characters have family secrets, hijinks, things are dropped, things are spilled, accusations are made, same stuff. On top of that, somehow, 
there is a voiceover or a, a conversation that is happening live that we just don't see. Somehow we hear these four characters. We're presumably thinking that they're white people, though I don't think that we see their faces. Um, these characters are Suze, Jimbo, Betts, and Mac. I'm not sure how important their names are, other than they're, they're four white people, and they're having, let's call it, a highly problematic conversation on race. <laughs> yeah. yep. They are, the, the conversation begins in media res, according to the playwright, that uh, Jimbo is trying to get Suze to say, if you could be a different race, what race would you be? Act one did not continue into act two. It was a replay. But act three is a continuation of the action of act two. And the family drama continues, except now those four characters that we heard talking in act two enter act three as characters in the family drama. So Suze enters as the grandma, presumably a white woman playing the black grandmother. Uh, obviously there's, wow, <laughs> right? Then Jimbo enters as the uncle. And then Mac enters as Keisha's teenage friend, Erica. And then Betts enters also as the grandma. There's now two women playing the same black grandmother. Neither of them are black. And so there's some craziness that happens there as all four of these white people try to kind of control or shift the action on stage and the behavior of the family that we met way back in Act 1 to suit their preconceived notions about what should be happening on stage. Oh, I'm not done yet, if you believe <laughs> it or not. It's almost there. You're doing <laughs> We're good. We're so close. <laughs> that ends with a major food fight, uh, which destroys the set somehow. She's not very specific on how it destroys the set, which is a lovely imaginative thing that the playwright allows the cast and the or the production team to come up with themselves. Somehow the house is destroyed from this food fight. And then Keisha, the black teenager that is, we've seen the whole play, and Suze, this white woman who's playing the grandmother, have a conversation where Keisha invites the audience, the white audience members, to come up onto the stage and... Uh, that's how. That's basically how the play ends. She has a. She had. She talks about that some, and we'll, we'll talk about what she says. But that's action wise. That's how the play ends with Keisha inviting the white audience members up onto the stage. Jackson, what is this play about? Oh boy! <laughs> Let me just toss you the biggest question mark I can right at the beginning. I've described the wild ride that the audience goes on. You see a one act of a family dramedy. You see the same one act over with uh, you know conversations about it, around it, above it. Then you see it torn apart by people intruding on it. What is the thesis of all that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think some of it is the journey some some of the, the the beautiful parts of this play is the journey that the audience itself goes on. It is a play that has to do with white gaze. Um, I mean, that's that's one way to interpret the title of the play, Fairview. Um, it's uh, it, it is having to do with if with how under scrutiny the black community is, especially in America. 
there's an interesting phenomenon of this play, which is true of all theater, but then is magnified in this piece, which is that Fairview, the theatrical experience, only happens once. Because the end of the play is so strongly based on the interaction that the white audience and the other audience too, I suppose, but that that end of the play is, is you know, there's this moment where Keisha invites the white audience onto stage and then talks to them, talks to them about making space, about, you know, that they, they don't own the seats that they're sitting in. There's all this stuff. And that is such a huge part of the experience of this play that you know when you see it it only happens once right it only happens that night the one time that you see this play there's an there's an experience you know the first 90 minutes of it could be exactly the same as the play plays out according to the script but then when you reach that point where Keisha looks at the audience and says come up on stage what happens next makes each time the play is done a totally new theatrical experience yeah it's really it's it's a really visceral moment of the play it's a really uh kind of it's pretty much just a real moment i mean yes it's scripted the actors playing Keisha will be saying the same things each night, presumably, but also maybe not. I mean, depending on what the audience does as they're coming up on stage, um, there, I, I believe there's even a line in there that kind of assumes uh, that people do come up on stage. There's a thank you in there that doesn't make a lot of sense unless she's talking to people coming up on stage. Um, so, so, so that moment, we're jumping right to the end, but it's because that moment defines this play to a certain extent. It defines it in the white audience's response to the call to come up on stage. And then also the ending of that monologue, which is a moment of solidarity with the non-white audience that is left in the audience. Um, there's a moment where she tells the story as if um, it, it all happened. All the, the the white audience came up on stage and now there's this moment of solidarity at the end where she tells a story uh, to that uh, remaining audience. Right. Jackie Sibley's Drury is quoted as saying that the play really couldn't function without white people in the audience. That part of the show is necessary to the overall scope of the play. You can't leave that out. She has said it, the, the play really couldn't happen for an audience that was entirely people of color. And some of what occurs is this switch, right? Now, we all know the theater, especially the Western theater, is full of white people. <laughs> it's full of white people on stage, on the production teams, producers, writers, actors. I mean, white people inundate all of the theater side and the audience side. White, rich, white, especially, especially left-leaning rich white people make up the bulk of who sees plays in America. And so Jackie Sibley's Drury creates a play where... She has a black family on stage, and then she creates a group of white people to watch the play of the black family and comment on it and, you know, intrude their own gaze onto it just in terms of the watching. And then there's this next element where those people actually intrude into the scene. And then she takes all of that and says, oh, to the audience, not only is this about you, and it's clearly about you, but now you're involved. 
You've been watching. You've been having little chatty conversations to each other about what you're seeing. So now you're going to do the intrusion as well. Come up on stage and intrude into the scene just as the characters from Act 2, the white characters from Act 2, intruded into the scene. In, in one interview I watched of uh, Jackie Sibley's Drew, she talks about how especially the liberal East often thinks that they have fixed racism in, in their area. And the reality is it's not. It's not been fixed. And so this play is kind of talking into that and, and illuminating some of the, the, the remnants of racism and, and the ongoing racism that's still there. And the theater community is no exception to that. And so there's this switch that occurs White people are used to inserting their gaze onto people of color. And there's a whole host of things that comes with that. And the end of this play is the white people up on stage under the lights where the people of color are out in the audience looking at them. The gaze has been reversed. There's a lovely commentary that Keisha has about the stage lights and how the stage lights are not really there for you to see out, for the actor, the person on stage, to see the audience. The stage lights are there to, to illuminate you on stage. And so it actually has sort of a blinding effect. And that's what, as if you're an audience member, a white audience member that attends this show, that's how the play ends for you. You've spent 90 minutes and two hours, whatever, watching, judging, thinking, bringing your own preconceived notions about people of color to a play that people of color are the ones on stage. And then at the end, you're asked to be the one up on stage and the people of color are the ones looking at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful moment of using technical elements of theater to make a really defined point. Right. Like coming from from the dark of the audience to the stage lights, anyone who has done that transition before, if you've worked in theater, you know, the contrast is amazing and you can't you literally can't see anyone. <laughs> you know, after some time on stage, you maybe eventually can see the audience. But that moment where you turn and Ke uh, the Keisha's lines in that monologue are so poignant about how bright the lights are and uh, and how other people are seeing you, but you can't see them. That's just such a vis visceral teaching moment for the audience as they come up, something that you can't uh, manufacture if you maintain a fourth wall. Um, there's there's no way to repeat that sort of lesson that is taught without that stepping on stage, looking back to the lights and not seeing anything out there. What I think is so notable about the way Jimbo begins there is not just that he has some stereotypical beliefs about Asian people. Of course he does, <laughs> and, and he lets those loose. But he also believes that if he were Asian, he could, like, fix it, right? So he talks about how he believes Asian people are repressed and have bad relationships with their parents, basically. And if he were Asian, he wouldn't be repressed, and he'd take his parents to therapy, and he'd fix it, and he'd be an example for all the Asian people. Now, that is horrifying yeah that's yeah. I mean, horrifying <laughs> yeah. and, and suze who's the one in conversation with him notes that it's horrifying yeah yeah and and the, suze suze for the most part uh tries to be a conscientious conscientious objector that's a hard word to say um for most of the most of the act two but eventually even she 
moves into that space as well. Right. Um, she she refuses for much of that act too to to even provide what race she would be if she could be a different race because she thinks the whole conversation is racist. Spoilers, she's right. But when she finally is does admit what she would be, she says she would be African American, and she says that why is that she had this I guess nanny when she was growing up who was black and who took care of her and she built the special relationship. Oh, blah 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 blah. But then Sue's falls into the exact same trap that Jimbo did. And I think it's so masterfully written how Jackie Sibley's jury connects those two characters because then Suze says, well, what would I do if I was black? I'd help people. And it's not just help people, but fix the stereotypes that she believes uh, are true of African-American communities, right? So she talks about teaching people to manage their money well and how to get mortgages and how to get you know handle all this stuff that she believes she could fix the problems of the what she believes are the stereotypical problems of the African-American community, I guess. And then we, we see each of these characters move into the scene in Act 3 trying out these strategies as if they could uh, step in and be honest representations of these black characters. We see Suze adopt a very uh, maternal grandma um, who who comes downstairs and is trying to help Keisha? She breaks it. One one of the one of the really uh, beautiful moments and 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 I think defined moments of this uh, intrusion into this family's lives is not just these characters uh, uh, breaking in and enacting their will, but there's a moment when Suze actually breaks into Keisha's aside. Uh, the th- the theatrical device of an aside. She's kind of stopping and soliloquying. And if anywhere, you'd think a, a an aside would be safe for a character. But even that uh, kind of internal monologue is invaded by Suze, who pops in in this uh, maternal grandmother role that she's attempting to play to give her advice. And you begin to see, especially Keisha throughout the scene, begin to realize what's happening. She's kind of the, on- the one with the clearest vision of something's wrong here that all this 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 isn't consistent <laughs> with uh the honesty of the previous scene these these four characters are coming in and changing um what was an honest representation of a family to their view of of what that family would be like Keisha's confusion does rise to the meta level where she starts to understand that the the basic tenets of the reality are wrong. It's not just that people are saying confusing things, but the people themselves are confusing and not behaving like they should. I think she addresses it in a really a really interesting way. She addresses her realization moment comes in a conversation with Suze, who of any of the white characters in this play, I think I think is the most maybe the most empathetic one. Um, the one who has a very she has a very touching story to her childhood nanny, and that's that's the the bias she's bringing into this is that her experience of of uh, African American and black society um, is is her nanny growing up. Right. So, so a she, caretaker and an employee. Yeah. Exactly. So she enters the scene as that. And so she has a, a, a pretty immediate connection to Keisha. She's trying to be this, this maternal presence for her. And Keisha's realization that she, it's almost, it, it, it brings out the, the kind of coolness of this character breaking into the reality of the situation. She, through a pretty lengthy back and forth with Suze, gets the courage to say, you're white. 
Um, and, and that starts the kind of ball rolling for the rest of the scene of her unpacking what's happening, um, and, and building to that monologue. And so between Keisha, the, the youngest, the, the youth in the scene, I'm not counting Mac as the youth in the scene, um, (laughs) with, (laughs) with Keisha and then Sue's this more, more empathetic character that's where this ball begins rolling and i think it's a really touching moment between those two as keisha begins to unwrap what is happening in this scene and i think Suze is intended to be the more empathetic of the white characters without excusing her from her problematic behavior either i mean she's not the mo- you know she she's not innocent of any of the racial bias and the white gaze that the other white characters bring maybe more openly and in fact the way in which Suze conceals or is in denial about her own prejudice is perhaps uh, another th- another level of the commentary Now, we've talked about that each of these white characters brings into the Act 3 intrusion kind of their own um, sense of black people, right? So Suze thinks uh, her relationship with black people is with this maternal caretaker kind of person. So she she comes in as this sort of grandmother character. Tyrone, or Jimbo, playing Tyrone, he said in Act 2 that if you're going to... This is truly something that he says. If if you were going to be black, again, going back to that what race would you be question, the only way to really be black is to be black and poor. So you can, like, go to the club and live on the streets. That's something he really says. It's horrifying. And but, so when he comes in as Tyrone, who, by the way, is a successful lawyer, so he's not even interpreting the character correctly within the context of the play at all. He comes in as, like, a rapper. Chains, backwards ball cap, big shoes, big jeans. He raps on his entrance. He's playing his own preconceived stereotype of like the ideal black person, which is totally disconnected from the character of Tyrone at all. Mac does the same thing. His conversation in Act 2 is about, like, black women and how sassy and powerful they are. And so he comes on as Erica in drag, as Jackson said, and he plays a very sassy, powerful Erica. And uh, Bets too, she talks about wanting to be black and sing jazz. And so as she, when she plays the grandma, she plays the grandma as this sort of exquisite, sensual jazz singer. Yeah, so each of those... Each of each of those representations of of the black community for them, they act out and they act act into the scene. We see how much it derails the scene. Um, we, we've talked about the confusion of the adult characters before, not necessarily with with the fact that white people are playing their relatives. But it's what's inserted into the scene is this like chaos Right. This like constantly pointing back and forth. They try different uh, uh, storylines that don't really make sense. We mentioned Dayton's gambling that Jimbo brings into it. Um, There's all sorts of things that that just cause confusion, cause strife within this family as these white characters are pushing buttons just to like make it more consistent with their interpretation of what this family. You can't see my air quotes, but they're there should be like. Right, because, and this is maybe the point you were trying to make earlier, the problems that this family has in their family drama are not 
like what the white characters think are the stereotypical black family problems, right? In this family that we meet in Act 1, Keisha wants to take a gap year before going to college, and her mother doesn't like that. Beverly is really stressed and sort of hyper-controlling about making this dinner go right, and her family is trying to get her to calm down a little bit about it. Her and Dayton clearly have some marital strife that they're trying to work out kind of behind the scenes. So those are not the problems that these four white characters that Drury has imagined think the black family should have. So when they come in, they bring other problems like one of you must be on drugs and so addicted to drugs that it's ruining the family's life. Young Keisha must be pregnant and she's going to have to have grandma raise the baby. And so they bring this layer of what they expect the problems this black family should be facing are, and they force those problems on them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And they, they, and <laughs> it's interesting to watch then, watch them the awakening that happens. I think, I think the audience is going through an awakening of that in the moment and, and, and a, and a judgment of that in the moment. But then as Keisha awakens to it, as the, the, the narrative shifts to a, one of, um, talking to the audience about their complicity in it, we then go as the audience again on the journey of, yeah, we were judging them for that, but now we're stepping up on stage. We're, we're, we're forced to look at our culpability in this story and how we, interlope into the story as well. The play starts with such a delightful, subtle little commentary on... Uh, gays not being value neutral. Beverly is dancing around the kitchen getting ready and her husband Dayton comes on stage and there's this extended piece of stage direction where Dayton just watches Beverly dance. So he's watching her. That's a huge theme through the play is being watched, obviously. And so the play begins with Dayton watching Beverly. And his gaze is not value neutral. And Drury makes sure that we know that. She writes in what Dayton's thinking. And his thoughts are sexual, right? I mean, it's his wife. So he's thinking, wow, my wife's a really sexy woman. He's watching her dance. Drury is very clear that this initial watching is not a value-neutral watching, that Dayton is thinking, expecting, and layering something onto the scene. Beverly is not dancing sexually. She's just dancing. But... Dayton brings his own preconceived notions to what he's seeing. And that, right away, as the initial interaction of the play, sets up so much of how the wheel of this play is going to be rolling. Um, you, you have confusion right away at the top of Act 2, right? Like you're forced to, to be jarred out of your, your belief that you're watching just a dramedy. Um, so you're listening to voices. You can't tell where they are. You're looking at the action on stage. You can't hear what they're saying, but they're clearly uh, mouthing their lines as they go through uh, their their action. Um, and and you, I think you eventually kind of go through this fun experience. Of, I mean, kind of fun, um, a little bit intimidating experience of of learning that this conversation is happening outside the realm of the play, but about the play that you have been watching. And in that way, um, you and, you and just almost... to, I, I won't interrupt you for too long here, but other than to just say, you don't know that it's about the play for a long time. A ways, it's an extended yeah. length of time before the character, the white characters, start commenting on the action on stage. The conversation yeah. is seemingly separate from that for a long time. Yeah. 
So there's this fascinating moment of like, is someone like four rows down for me having this conversation? <laughs> um, you know, you don't know where it's if, if, if you can't see them, um, there is this kind of disembodied uh, wondering around like what's what's going on, what's going to happen. It also creates an interesting moment of theater when the characters show up in act three. Um, when when this these conversation folks, uh, the, the white folks who have been t- doing this commentary of the play the whole time, show up into the play, we're then asked to do another bit of mental gymnastics to be like, okay, so what do I know about these folks? Oh my goodness, that Suze. Or, oh my goodness, that we don't we don't really get much of the names of these characters, but we start to identify the voice with the faces of these characters as they enter the scene. It's just a, a it's it's a, a fascinating bit of work to do on the part of the audience that I think is I mean it jars you right it's almost an alienating effect where you're forced to really go oh no I don't understand what's happening let me re-engage and figure this out yeah I think you've said this already but the act one is it's kind of a trick it it's it's it lures you into feeling that you're seeing something you've seen before that this is just what I come to the theater to see, sort of a funny but also dramatic family story that things are going to clash, secrets are going to be revealed, hijinks are going to happen, and Act 1 ends with her fainting and the cake is burnt. Oh, no! <laughs> and then Act 2 starts, and it's the same freaking thing over again. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, what, what is happening? This is <laughs> and not there's what... voices... I mean, I'd almost love to just go see the play for a week's worth of runs and see the different ways that audience interacts because the ask is not specific, right? I mean, I've seen Broadway shows where people are invited up on stage before, but they're invited up on stage to do something specific. And it especially happens in fourth wall breaking comedies. Somebody's asked up on stage to hold something and then the something sort of falls apart in their hands or, or something. But they're given a task. In this case, the white people are invited up onto stage and told to sort of do whatever you want. You want to go try the food? Go try the food. You want to go sit on the couch? Go sit on the couch. And it's perhaps the lack of instructions which makes the ask more nerve-wracking. Intimidating, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like once you're up there, you're up there, and she's still talking. There's plenty of monologue left, and it's good monologue, so it's not like you can go like prancing around on stage (laughs) or, or really goofing off all that much. So, so it's, it's, it's a, it's an intimidating ask. All right, folks, so that is what you are getting from us. Shorter than you're used to, and just sort of the highlights of the conversation that we had. We really enjoyed talking about the play, but this is not where the episode of No Script ends. Yes, go ahead and look in the description of wherever you clicked on this podcast. You will see three links to other conversations. Take a second look over those interviews and please engage the the interviews there continue listening to other voices besides ours about this script and i hope that you uh if you are looking for people to talk about the script with consider us as an option we would love to keep talking about this script with you that's right you can find us on facebook on instagram and on twitter the handles for all of those are no script podcast we also have a gmail no script podcast at gmail.com we are really privileged to be able to talk about scripts every week and we are really excited about the prospect of talking about this challenging 
um, hard-hitting, powerful, moving, funny play with you. Engage us any of those places, and let's continue this conversation. And tell your friends about it. If you want uh, other people to have conversations with, <laughs> talk to your friends. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, you can uh we're on oh boy we flipped the roles this time uh <laughs> i know we, i don't know that we've ever done this we we talked about the opposite thing here yeah, at the yeah. end so we're, we're we're scrambling around a little it's bit fine. this is unscripted it's unscripted, it's unscripted. <laughs> you can find us on itunes uh podbean is where the uh podcast itself is hosted and we're also on google play as well you can find the podcast on any of those share share it around rate the podcast thank you all for taking the time to listen absolutely until next week where we're talking about another another of theater's best scripts <laughs> okay so the good news is that this isn't the end right you don't have to listen to our fumbling end right. and be like done exactly you have a mission to go listen to something else and i'm sure whatever else you listen to or read will have a much better ending than this <laughs> a real polished finish <laughs> until next week see you all later this is no script the podcast see ya